Well, good morning again. My name is Brad Cheney. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4. John 4 is the passage we'll be um, looking at today. You know, and if you're visiting with us this morning, thanks for braving the snow. Um, You know, I didn't grow up in a Presbyterian church, and so if I was a first-time visitor, there would be things that are just completely unfamiliar. Like, I wouldn't understand what Presbyterian means in the, in the name of the church or, or why a church would be called All Saints. Or Suffice to say that you may have questions about why we do what we do and um, what things mean. I'd love to grab coffee with you or, or lunch with you and, and just you know, talk about that, have a conversation over that. Um, likewise, if you're here today and you're exploring the Christian faith, um, yeah, let's have a conversation. Let's get together. Um, my contact information is on the back of the bulletin, and I'm available at any time. I, I, I truly, like seriously, love to, to talk more ab- about these things. So John 4 is one great conversation. This is the longest recorded conversation that Jesus has with anyone in the Bible, including his disciples. So that tells you something about the significance in John's mind that he would record something you know, this long and, and detailed. It's with a woman who, uh, she's, she may have been divorced not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, but five times. Um, which in the ancient world, I mean, five divorces, that's like unheard of. How does that even happen? <laughs> um, but yes, and now she's living with a sixth man. Is it kind of ringy out there? It seems really ringy and loud up here, Nate. I don't know, but yeah. And now she's living with a sixth man who doesn't even love her enough to marry her. That, if you read between the lines, that's what's going on. You know, some of you, um, some of you have have been through a divorce. You know that it is a living death. Um, all of us have watched people go through divorces. I've heard it said before that, you know, a divorce is like somebody taking a rusty butter knife and just start sawing on your soul and cutting a piece of your soul away. Um, I thought that's a, a powerful description of it. And this woman has been through as many as five of these. Five. What does that do to a human being, to, to a human soul? Um, and now um, it's important to remember that in the ancient world, I mean, normally the way it worked is women didn't divorce men. Men divorced women. You know, it was the men who did it. And so, again, reading between the lines, you see a woman in the story who has been like, terribly, terribly mistreated by, by uh, her husband's. Five divorces. Didn't she learn her lesson? Why did she keep doing it? Why, why did she remarry all those times? And I, I wonder if you know what the answer is to those questions we may ask. The answer is in order to survive. You know, oh, I was tempted when I began writing the sermon to say that this woman was looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> but she wasn't. Most, not, most likely she wasn't. Because back then, you didn't marry, you didn't marry for romance. Now, you married as a woman, you married to survive. And, and now she's on number six. Um, last statement before we jump into it. 
We don't know the fuller part of the backstory. Who knows? She might have been um, responsible for some of these divorces. Maybe they weren't all divorces. Maybe, you know, some of her husbands um, died. But she is going to now meet a complete stranger, a Jewish rabbi, who somehow mysteriously knows all, all about her, like all ab- about this. Her deepest and darkest secrets, this guy knows it. The skeleton's in her closet. He knows it. And what's so beautiful about the passage is what does he do with that information? Does he use that information to condemn her? To move away from her? No, it's to move towards her and to offer her, to offer to meet her greatest need, her deepest need. The reason we love this passage so much is because we are all this woman. We are all this this woman. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near, uh, I, I should make a quick note. Um, oftentimes it's said that uh, the Jews would never pass through Samaria. Maybe you've heard it said that before. You know, they hated the Samaritans and they, Jews would never, you know, go through the area of Samaria. And that Jesus going through is a sign of his compassion. That's not historically accurate. While it is true that Jews who lived in Jerusalem rarely, if ever, would pass up through Samaria heading, heading north. Jews who lived up in Galilee, they were different. And they would con- uh, routinely pass through Samaria. So, This is just on his route, sorry. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, well, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, You have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, 
I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain, oh, pardon me, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Well, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman, but no one asked what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and, and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could, could someone have, been, have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the reaper draws his wages. Even now, he, he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus saying, the one who sows, one sows, sorry, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have come, have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. And then finally, verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and, and he stayed two days. And because of the, his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Amen. I mean, doesn't, that, doesn't reading that just put a smile on your face? I mean, what a, what a conversation. What a passage. Um, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Maybe you already realized this. Or maybe you've been told it in another sermon before. Probably you've heard it in my sermon because I preached the same passage of four years ago in Easter, at Easter. But Jesus doesn't give a rip about social taboos. Um, if, I, if I was in a group of guys, I would probably put that even in, a little more bluntly, <laughs> um, maybe a little more profanely. Jesus does not care about social taboos. Um, he is deliberately reaching across every significant barrier that would have existed back then. Like every convention of the time that he as a religious Jewish man should have observed and people would have you know, looked cross-eyed at him um, if he did not observe, 
He doesn't care. He does not care. He does not care the racial divide, the cultural divide, the gender divide, the moral divide. You think back to the civil rights era. Think back to the time when whites would not share a drinking water dispenser with blacks. Think of the level of bigotry that is necessary for you to even refuse to drink from the same water faucet as as a black man. And we see Jesus doing here something that is, you know, far more radical than drinking at the water fountain. He is, do you see, he is offering, uh, asking, actually, asking to put his lips on the same jar that this woman would have drunk from. I mean, to, to use the, the, the analogy, um, he's, he's sticking his mouth on the spigot, <laughs> And John has given us a clue right here. He says that you know, Jews and Samaritans, they hated each other. Um, Samaritans, if you know any of the backstory, they had taken biblical religion, they had mixed it together with paganism, and they come out with this like, new hybrid religion, which the Jews considered was a heretical religion. I mean, essentially both sides considered the other side a heretic. And so, yes, he, he, they hated each other, um, But did you notice when the disciples come back from the village, did you notice what they were surprised about? Not that he is talking to a Samaritan, because I already said it was common for Galilean Jews to go through Samaria. You got to talk to somebody when you're moving through town. He's not that, that he's talking to a Samaritan, but that he is talking to a what? To a woman. See, the ancients... You may want to write this down. The ancients construed the world as gender divided. Males occupied the quote-unquote public world. Females occupied the private world. Males, generally speaking, there are exceptions, males don't meet with women in the public world. I mean, it went so... The divide was so great that, at least according to my reading, it was common for husbands... A husband wouldn't even speak to his wife when they were out in public together because males don't meet with females in the public world. And, um, I mean, one of the reasons, too, is, is, a, is a woman is supposed to be you know, sexually discreet and talking to an unknown man out in public, you know, Victorianism, I mean, puritanicalism is like, oh, she's, she might be a loose woman. Or that's, frankly, what the... the Uh, implication would be. And yet Jesus is clearly transgressing social taboos that separate male and female and and saying to us, I don't care. I I absolutely don't care. The other really interesting um, nugget in the story, and lots of biblical commentators have pointed this out, did you notice when she comes to the well? What time was it? It was at noon in the middle of the day, which is definitely not the time women would ordinarily come to draw water. I mean, if we were to travel this afternoon to an African village or a Middle Eastern village, we would see the custom is still in practice today. The women in the village get up early in the morning and they go when it's still cool, the cool of the day, and they go, it's kind of, a, it's drawing water in a small village is a communal project. And so all the women together will go and do that. 
we have a woman who's there in the hottest time of day, middle of the day, at noon, and she's, all, she's there by herself. What does that likely indicate to us? That she is an outcast. That the women of the village have rejected her based upon her history. Yet Jesus is willing to cross any and every barrier in order to reach her, in order to reach the lost. It begs the question, are we? Are we? Let's drill down into the dialogue a little further. Um, After a long walk, Jesus, being fully human, fully God, fully human, is tired and thirsty. When a woman comes to the well, he makes a reasonable request. She has a bucket. He has none. Could she give him some water to drink? She takes offense at this. Verse verse 9, how can you be asking me for a drink? And Jesus says, I mean, what a great line. Verse 10 If you knew who I was, you would have been asking me for a drink. You would ask me for living water. And if you drink that water, that water will make it so that you never thirst again. And she replies, what are you talking about? My ancestors are the ones who dug this well. It's the only source of water for miles around. Uh, Is there some kind of secret stream that you know about that that I can go to? And so you see what's going on. She interprets that phrase, living water, in physical terms, in terms of a stream. And a common way to speak about a stream in the Greek is running water, a running stream of water, living water. She says, is there some special water source here? Then um, if there is, please, I would, I'd love to know. Please give me this living water. We hit verse 16, and verse 16 I, you know, it's one of those, don't you wish you could just read the Bible with new eyes and read it for the first time again? Because <laughs> when you read 16 for the first time, it sounds like the most non sequitur statement imaginable. He says, go call your husband. <laughs> and she's like, well, hold on. I thought we were talking about water and now you want to talk to me about my husband? Why does Jesus suddenly change the topic from a water source to her history with men? And the answer uh, to that question, of course, is he doesn't. Uh, He is focusing on the fact that this woman is is irremediably irremediably thirsty. Uh, She is hurt. She is lonely. She bears scars that I can't imagine. She is ultimately very, very thirsty. And she replies to this, well, I don't have a husband, which is a half-truth. And Jesus drills down, the fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. And he drills down, in that, in that sentence, he drills down to what really matters, when you think about the conversations, the, the interaction we as humans have with each other, we hardly ever talk about what really matters. We hardly ever talk about what's like really going on in our hearts. Um, our, our conversation is almost always surface level. You know, 
How's your work going? How's your family doing? How's school going? What are you, go- what are you going to do for vacation this year? Who's going to win the game? Um, we, we rarely talk about what is real, what is really going on inside of us. Why is that? Well, as I've grown older, <clears throat> I have noticed a, a tendency in, in myself I want to avoid what's really going on inside of me. I want to ignore and avoid whatever is really happening down there. Because it's, a, especially when it's painful, it's a whole lot easier to cope with it if it's just out of sight, out of mind. I'm not even going to think about it. I'm not going to talk about it. I mean, isn't it true? I mean, we rarely have anything like this kind of interaction with other human beings. I mean, the genius... And I, let me step back. We should not go here usually that quickly with a complete stranger. <laughs> I'm not saying that we should replicate these kinds of conversations. This, this like very direct, confrontive, we just met and let me talk to you. You know, I'm not saying we should do it exactly like that. But the genius of this whole story is Jesus, you know, he cuts through all the baloney, doesn't he? And he gets right to the heart of the, of the human and, and has a conversation that's centered there. He gets real with her. And then what does she do in verse 19? Are you want to look there with me? He goes, gets real with her and she says, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. I've got a theological question for you. <laughs> and she launches right into this theological discussion about where's the proper spot to worship. Mount Gerizim, which would have been off in the distance, that, as you might guess, was the place that the Samaritans, you know, there was their temple, um, or Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And she launches right into some theological controversy. Has it ever happened to you before? You're talking to somebody, maybe you're talking to somebody about matters of faith, and as soon as it, it gets close and personal to them, they deflect the conversation in a new direction. Uh, let's talk about what about abortion? What about homosexuality? What about what about all the people who have never heard of Jesus before? Um, what you know? What about hell? Um, and they just as soon as you start to get close to a person's heart, that's a defense mechanism. They're just deflecting. Let's move to something else. I'm not saying that those aren't reasonable questions to ask. They are fair questions. But what I am saying is that you're never going to get anywhere with God until you let him ask you the question. You will never get anywhere with God until you let him ask you this question. This question. Do you have any idea how how truly thirsty you are? Most of us um, do not have any idea most of us are not very good at recognizing our own spiritual thirst. It writes one author, quote, As long as we think there's a pretty good chance that we will achieve some of our dreams, as long as we think that we have a shot at success, we experience our inner emptiness as drive and our anxiety as hope. Most of us tell ourselves that the reason we remain unfulfilled is because we simply haven't been able to achieve our goals. And, and if we do and find that right person, um, then we're still hoping for that because it'll satisfy. And we're still driven. 
so we can live almost all our entire lives without admitting, admitting to ourselves the depth of our spiritual thirst. You know, you have to, you have to, um, you know, ask yourself that question. Do I really understand how thirsty I am? They say that our bodies are comprised of 70% of water. And when a human being starts to die of dehydration, every nerve inside the body begins to scream out. Uh, dehydration is it's almost like the sun that is beating down on the outside comes into the inside and you feel this, as I've heard it described, a searing, burning pain inside. And at that moment, you know, people who are dying of dehydration, they will drink anything. I mean, they'll drink pancake syrup, urine, antifreeze. They will do anything, absolutely anything to satisfy that quenching, to quench that thirst. And one of the things you have to do with passages like this is, is to really ask yourself the question, um, well, I don't know, what am I drinking? And am I really satisfied? Because Jesus promises a living water that if you drink of this water, if you drink deeply of this water, his promise is you will never thirst. And I think it's very disingenuous of us Christians to go around and tell people, hey, believe the, you got to believe in Jesus, receive the gospel, but do so if we ourselves are not really satisfied by Jesus Christ and we're not, we're not really quenched in our, in our thirst. And one of the best parts of growing up in Arizona um, are the summer nights. Summer days are, what, 115 or 110. But at nighttime, when the sun goes down, the temperature drops pretty rapidly. And what we would do in high school is we would go out to sand volleyball courts and play. I mean, I'm not any good, but, but back in the day, I could play a little bit of beach volleyball, sand volleyball. Um, one of my, some of my best memories were summer evenings when we'd sit around just as a group of friends and talk about life. And the one that is most poignant to me, it actually wasn't at a sand volleyball court, it was at a tennis court. All I can remember, I say it's most poignant to me, and then I'm going to say, I can hardly remember any of it. <laughs> but if you know anything about my memory, that shouldn't surprise you. I just remember there's this, there was this patch of grass next to the public, public tennis courts about a mile and a half from my home. And it was 10 or 11 o'clock at night. It was 85 degrees. And I just remember laying in the grass beside the tennis court, looking up at the stars and really thinking about, you know, what is, what is this life? What, what is this life supposed to be? Um, why am, I, why am I so desperate for female attention? Why, why do I have to get such good grades and high test scores? And, and I mean, haven't you had one of those moments where it just dawns on you and you really, you really start to ask the deep questions about thirst, about thirst and quench and, and all of that. And I think that's if we're, if we are hearing the Spirit in John 4, that's in fact what we are meant to do. Now Jesus says to this woman, 
Uh, I, I have living water. I have something your soul needs even more than your body needs water. Um, what can satisfy an irremediable thirst? And uh, I'm not at, quite at the end of the sermon, but I thought no discussion of John would be complete without a reference to this scene in C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair. You may already know the one that I'm going to, but Jill Pohl has entered a strange wood in the land of Narnia with her friend Eustace, was it Scrub? And she's been somehow separated from Eustace. She's wandering around uh, alone in the wood. When we read, the birds had ceased singing and there was a perfect silence except for one small persistent sound which seemed to come from a good distance away. She listened carefully and felt almost sure that it was the sound of running water. Jill got up and looked around her uh, very carefully. There was no sign of the lion, but there were so many trees about that it might easily, the, the lion might easily be quite close without her seeing it. But her thirst was very bad now, and she plucked up her courage to go and look for the running water. The wood was so still that it was not difficult to decide where the sound was coming from. It grew clearer every moment, and sooner than she expected, she came to an open glade and saw the stream, bright as glass, running across the turf a stone's throw away from her. But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward to drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned to stone her, with her mouth wide open, and she had a very good reason, for just on the other side of the stream lay the lion. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours, and the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you, you're thirsty, you may drink. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. And then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, uh, a sort of heavy golden voice. Are you thirsty? said the lion. Man, I wish I could do a better Aslan voice. (laughs) Are you thirsty? said the lion. And she replied, I'm dying of thirst. Then drink. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? The the lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. She asked fearfully, "Do, Do you eat girls? I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. 
I suppose, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. And what did the lion say to her? He said, there is no other stream. That's John 4. There is no other stream. If, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, um, I'll just say that you may not realize it yet, but if you ever come to the time when you realize there is a craving inside of your soul that nothing down here can satisfy, then come and drink, for there is no other stream. Three other short notes, then I'll be done. Um, Most of us, you know, this is, as I said, one of the great conversations of the Bible. And, you know, most of us have been exposed to a a evangelism technique where it's kind of like how to share your faith without losing your friends, a a canned evangelism program that's sort of one size fits all. You know, you say this first and then you say this and then you say say that. Um, I want you just to note here that Jesus' presentation is a lot better. Um, Jesus shows us a better way. None of the conversations that Jesus has with anybody in the Bible, uh, none of them are exactly the same. Not a single one. They They don't even follow the same pattern. They're all different. It's like he customizes his presentation of the gospel to his audience. And so should we. You see, the gospel, the message doesn't change, but the message is so rich and so versatile that we can accentuate different aspects of the message in different situations. Um, I really do think the key to that is just being real and finding out what is really going on um, inside yourself and that other person. So yes, love people, be real with people, don't be afraid to cross social boundary lines, and, and don't feel like you have to present the gospel in that, you know, cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all um, one fa- fashion. Second note, uh, one of the recurring themes that we'll discover in the Gospel of John is Jesus' strange propensity to know the inner secrets of other people. Like, he is able to read human hearts. Um, I could get up, give other examples of this, but we'll, we'll come across it in the, uh, in the gospel. He knows us. Like, we can't deep fake him. <laughs> we can't fake him out. What's wonderful about his knowledge is how, how he uses this information. Um, as Jesus brings our skeletons out of our closets and thrusts our deep, darkest and deepest secrets into the light... Rather than exploiting their hold over us as a means of control, rather than using that as a way to uh, blackmail us or or, uh, coerce us, no, he uses that knowledge as a way to break the power of those things over us and to set us free. That's what happens to her. Third and final note, there's several stories of women um, in the Bible finding their husbands at wells. I, I don't know if you picked up on that theme, but you know, uh, Rachel comes to the well, and there she finds her future husband Jacob. And um, uh, there's uh, there's others that I can't think of off the top of my head, but I think that is in the background of this story. This woman shows up at the well, um, husbandless 
for all intents and purposes, and she discovers an eternal husband. And then she does exactly what Rachel does when she discovers Jacob. She runs back into the village, the clan, the family, and says, guess who I met? You know, listen to this. Listen to this. This is a man who, who's revealed everything that's ever happened to me. Seems a little bit uh, hyperbolic, but you get the sense. She's so excited. You know, he has revealed all these things to me. And what's interesting about that is that the Samaritans had their own distinct view of what the Messiah was. And they called, do you know what they called the Messiah? They called him, I think it was the Talib. The Talib, the great revealer. The one who will reveal. And, And so she is taking what little knowledge she has of what the Messiah is supposed to be. And she goes back to her village just like Rachel and proclaims to them um, this, great, this great story. Well, in conclusion, we don't see this woman again in the Gospel of John. But I came across, I, I didn't know this, but Eastern, Eastern Christianity, Eastern Orthodox and Eastern Catholic Christianity um, purports to know her story afterwards. So they, um, they say that this is historically credible. Not exactly sure that it is, but this is what they say happens later on. She was baptized as a follower of Jesus and received the name Fotini, which means enlightened. Eventually, Fotini moved with her family, five sisters and two sons, to Carthage in present-day Tunisia. And there they became such notable witnesses as Christians that the Emperor Nero had them all arrested and brought to Rome. Tragically, Fotini was compelled to witness the torture and death of every one of her family members. Her sons were blinded, their legs were cut off, and then they were thrown out to be eaten by dogs. Her sisters were skinned alive. After this butchery, Nero gave Fotini a final chance to deny Christ. And it is said that Fotini, she looked at him and she spat at the emperor. And she laughed and she called out, You profligate and stupid man. (laughs) Do you think me so deluded? Why would I renounce my Lord Christ and sacrifice to idols that are as blind as, as you are? So Fotini was flayed alive like her sister's. And she was then thrown down, of all things, she was thrown down a well. A well. And she died in AD 66. Only she didn't die. Uh, She went deeper into life. All because she had drunk at the well, at Jesus' invite. Um, Every word, I'm telling you this, every word that Jesus spoke to her was true. And, and he speaks those same words to you. That indeed, the water I give you will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Come and drink. Amen.